This is the Common Sense Podcast presented by Tamar. I'm your host, Tamar Weinberg, founder and CEO of Tamar, and I will be talking to people of all walks of life who have suffered adversity and overcome to rise above the ashes and now make self-care and wellness an absolute priority. Hi, everybody. It's Tamar, and it is a brand new year, and I have a brand new awesome person to speak to. I have Abigail with me, and she is going to share a little bit about her story and her um, what has inspired her, what's been her impetus to, to kind of go in her career trajectory and things that have affected her in her life and what she's taking doing to take care and take charge of herself. And uh, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Uh, let us know where you're based and what you what you do and what you're up to. Sure, um, I'm a special education teacher in Boston. I'm working at a K through seven school. I'm mostly working with middle school students. Um, I originally went to school to be an arts therapist and mental health counselor. Um, I got my master's degree in that and worked in that field for little less than a year. Um, I graduated in from my, with my master's in 2008, which was not a time in the economy when people were really investing me into things like arts therapy, which created a very toxic work environment where a lot of the state agencies and nonprofits where I was looking for jobs or, or where I was getting jobs were sort of telling me to care less about the clients and care more about billing and paperwork which was not why I wanted to go into the mental health field. Um, so I took some time off from that and really tried kind of everything for a while. I worked in retail for a while. I worked as a bartender for a number of years. I worked as a nanny agency. And then and they were all sort of fun jobs, but none of them I really wanted to be in a field where I felt like I was giving back. Um, which I can get into later, but I feel like I just had, because of hardships I had in my childhood and all the people who really helped me and supported me, I felt passionate that I wanted a career where I could give back to others. And so I started working part-time um, as a teacher's aide at just a local elementary school in my hometown. My mom knew someone who knew someone who, knew someone who they were looking for somebody and just fell in love working in the school environment. Unlike working in healthcare at that time, I found that working in a school uh, allowed me to really form relationships with the students, with the families, with the community. I was able to be with students for really like 20 hours a week instead of you know the therapist hour, and really just loved teaching. And in hindsight, being a special teacher seems like it was an obvious career choice for me. But because growing up, school was never a place where I felt safe, I was bullied a lot in elementary school, really targeted to the point where I had to be taken out of school because school was not a safe environment and had to switch elementary school. And so in my mind growing up, teachers were not people that helped others. Teachers were just sort of instructors who just supervise. So... But yeah, but sort of by working with the teacher's aid, I realized that school could be a loving, caring environment that sort of helps kids to thrive. And so I went back to school to get a degree in special ed and have been working as a special education teacher. This is my sixth year working as a special ed teacher, and I love it. Cool. Awesome. That's amazing. One of the things you said that you talked about how you were 
you didn't find the teachers that you were that they weren't being they weren't being nurturing and supportive in your in your personal experience. I had the same thing. I actually was bullied very, very horribly, and I did not feel that the adults in my life and the people who had the authority over the children had were the advocates. Um, just just curious from your perspective, do you yep. see that that there has been a generational shift in terms of how that's being handled in today's day and age across the spectrum and the in the educational uh, environments that you're in? I do. I don't know. Um, I and mean, I can only really speak to the schools that I've worked at. Although, interestingly, the job where I worked as a teacher's aide was the elementary school that I had to leave. It was my old elementary school that I was taken out of in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going back there and just find that I had been turned into this very loving community where I was working with students with special needs who are often at risk of being bullied. And now, you know, 20 to 30 years later, this was a school environment where those students were being embraced as part of the school community and kids were being encouraged to be different and kids were being encouraged to be unique, which were things that were sort of caused for bullying when I was a student there. So while I do think that overall there has been a paradigm shift, I don't know if it's just that sort of society has sort of started to embrace differences more and sort of seeing differences as something to be sort of uh, welcomed as opposed to being called for equal. I don't know if it's that certain high-profile sides of things have sort of raised awareness of the real detrimental effects of bullying and called wolves to kind of wake up and take notice. So I don't know what's really caused that shift. I do think schools have become more of sort of a, they're not just where school students send and learn math and leave again. They have started to embrace this more sort of community feel that they try to support students more sort of as a whole child. Right, right. Do you feel that, I, I assume the environment in the school lends itself to a lot more of a supportive environment, but from your perspective, beyond the classroom, are you seeing, I mean, I don't really know what kind of things you could see as a teacher, but I mean, I, I, I assume that the schools in th- themselves have policies, anti-online bullying, uh, anti-cyberbullying type of policies and procedures that, that are followed. How, how is that? Just curious. Yeah, no, we do have bullying is definitely frowned upon. Um, in finding how that spreads to social media has, I think, been sort of a learning curve over the past four or five years even as that's become more of an issue. I know the school where I work does take bullying both in and out of the school environment very seriously. The schools, the students have been suspended for online bullying. Um, we also, I monitor students in the school building very well. Um, it would be, I think, hard for students to be bullied during the school day because there's just so much supervision. Um, students would have to be very, very sneaky about what they were doing. Right. Um, I think a lot of it happening more on social media these days. And I think a lot of schools have started to sort of realize that what students do outside of the school building is also their responsibility. Right. But I think that is still a great area in a lot of places. And I've had discussions with friends teaching different schools where they don't address social media complaints because they sort of feel like what happens at home stays at home, what happens at school stays at school. So I think that's sort of a district by district determination as people try to figure out how that is playing a role. Right. No, that's good. I'm, I'm really, I'm happy to hear because, yeah, I mean, we, you and I, you know, we're, we're definitely around, around the same age and that, that's, 
that was a huge challenge. I, I, you know, I was also a really early adopter on the online world. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, literally my friends were still going out and I was, you know, my Saturday nights were consumed with kind of communicating with people online that were usually 10 to 20 years my senior, if not, mm -hmm. long, if not older. And fortunately, cyberbullying was not much of an issue then. But at the same time, you know, there was never really an environment that that was safe for me. I never really found, you know, socially with the, my friends, I didn't even feel so like I, I didn't feel like I was the person who could be accepted within my social social yeah. sphere. So that was where that was my outlet. And um, it was hard. I mean, there were definitely times where I've been challenged for my identity, um, mm -hmm. for who I was, you know, for being a teenage girl in a at that point it was a mostly dominated male uh, environment yeah. and to prove that i'm who, who i am i mean sometimes people were like yeah prove it send me a picture send me yeah. nudes no no nudes but um that's not true but <laughs> i just didn't comply with those so um yeah um so i'm gonna ask you something that i don't know how much detail you're gonna go into um but i'm, I'm you know you talked about how you were you had definitely been a victim of bullying and you yeah. you know you talked about how you had suffered from some for some trauma, by some mm -hmm. trauma um, growing up. If you want to talk about that and, you know, how you were able to, like, bear through your, hear your testimony to, to your mm -hmm. resilience, do you, um, uh, how, however comfortable you're in elaborating on this, do you want to share a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so, like I said, I was pretty severely bullied in elementary school. Um, thank goodness it was before social media was a thing. I do not think I would have survived through middle school and high school if we had things like Snapchat and Instagram and I don't even know what else. Um, but um, a lot of, you know, kids kicking me, calling me names, making fun of how I looked, making fun of how family members looked. They were really like targeting. I was going to a very affluent town as part of a middle class family. And so I think even though I had enough money, I was seen as poor. Like sometimes I would wear hand-me-down clothing, and that was just something that other students were not doing in my town. Right. Um, I think a part of it is um, I do also part of it is that I was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder when I was ten. Um, I was diagnosed with OCD, which is not something that people knew about in the 1990s. Um, so now I think it is a disorder that is very much in the sort of public awareness. There have been a lot of movies, a lot of books, a lot of TV shows. And so if a kid has those sorts of quirks with like cleanliness and hand walking and ticks, people sort of recognize it for what it is. But back in the 90s, kids, people just thought I was weird. Um, and I was kind of weird, you know, like that fair. We are um, weird. <laughs> but it made me a very easy victim. And so trying sort of, it created for me this sort of both A, as a 10-year-old girl, sort of where maybe I had this disorder that nobody knew about, like even doctors didn't know what it was back then, and trying to sort of manage that part of my identity that I had this disease that nobody knew about, and then also navigating, I mean, middle school is hard for all girls, and then trying to sort of navigate through elementary school and middle school while being bullied just created just sort of a lot of sort of turmoil. I'm lucky that I have a phenomenal family who is very supportive through all of it. I'm lucky that I did have close friends. Not necessarily, I had a couple of close friends at school, but I also had a lot of close friends from my camp. I did a lot of theater, was really an outlet for me, and I had close friends from my theater group. So I was able to find sort of niches where I could sort of feel safe and where people could sort of take care of me and where I could sort of um, find those sort of outlets. 
theater and art was really a big part of my self-care growing up and still is to some degree today just as a place where I could find a community where I could feel like I belonged, where I could sort of escape the everyday world. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's it's inspiring. I mean, to see that you're able to like overcome to find your your place in the world and to and use an, a creative outlet. So that's great. Yeah. So you and I, we connected in a in a different realm, yeah. and I would love to kind of elaborate on that. Um, I know that in this particular podcast, we talk about self care in a yeah. number of different facets and. This is one that fitness, where I think that a lot of people have found themselves in embarking on a journey that ultimately is is super helpful. I'm I'm also, and I, I haven't actually spoken to anybody on it, but there's a, like there's this whole on Reddit.com. There's a whole subreddit called "Exercise Out of Depression." Mm. So a lot of people find that exercise is a great place, and I mean, coming in the you know we're in 2020 now. Um, it's it's a great outlet and a great avenue to um, you know boost ourselves both internally our self esteem but externally because of the you know the output that comes from there. So talk to me a little bit about that part of you. Yeah. So I started running about five or six years ago. Growing up, I hated running. Like I would walk the Monterey in gym class, and it would take half an hour. My gym teacher hated me. <laughs> I was adamantly anti running. And then about five or six years ago, I was kind of looking to maybe get into it. I had a lot of friends who were starting to do 5Ks. I also was at the time traveling a lot. I was in grad school in a long distance relationship. And so I was like, oh, if I could be a runner, then I could sort of exercise anywhere. My exercise at the time was like yoga and Zumba classes and spin classes where you're kind of connecting to a studio. So I was like, oh, like running seems like a cool thing to do. But like, I'm not a runner. I could never do it. And then one of my really close friends was, is also a teacher and had lost a student to pediatric cancer. And as a way of coping with that, her and some of her colleagues were organizing a 5K to raise money for pediatric cancer research. And she said, hey, will you run this 5K? And I said, ha, 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 I'm not a runner. And he goes, will you walk the 5K? And I was well, like, no, if we're going for a 5K, I'm going to run it. I'm just not a runner. So I downloaded the Couch to 5K app um, and did it and ended up, I thought at the time it was going to be one thing. I was like, I would run a 5K, and I did it, never run again. And then the race day did not go as planned. I finished in respectable time, um, but I ended up taking a lot of, I went out too fast, ended up taking a lot of walk intervals. It was really cold and I've been training all summer, so I didn't know how to breathe in the cold. And so I finished the race and sort of had this feeling of like, huh, that was fun, but I bet I could do it better. And so I signed up for a second 5K. And that time I was prepared for the weather and I ran the whole thing without taking any walking breaks. And I finished with this like incredible, just like exhilaration where I was like, huh, let's keep doing those. That was fun. So again, at the time that was like, I'm just a 5K runner. I do a few miles on the weekends. I'm just a 5K runner. And then that gradually escalated to doing a five miler. <laughs> and I was like, okay, five miler, like, that's cool. Like, I can run five miles. No desire to ever do anymore. I had a couple of friends who were also runners, and we would do 5Ks together. It was sort of a social event. And then I moved to Boston. I was living in New York City during all this. I moved to Boston and continued to do some 5Ks. And then I joined the November Project up in Boston, which is a free fitness community 
that exists in 52 cities around the world. And during November Project, I met a lot of just really fascinating, amazing athletes of all types, triathletes, marathoners, ultra marathoners. And a friend from November Project one day, as we were doing a really challenging stair workout, said, oh, have you ever considered a marathon? And I was like, nope, that's not for me. Um, they were like, no, like, if you could do this, like, you can do a marathon. It's just a matter of like training for it. And so I kind of started thinking like, huh, if the right race came along, maybe I would do it. And then I found out that there was a marathon up in Mount Desert Island, Maine, which is where I happened to be on vacation when I got my OCD diagnosis. And so it has sort of like a very meaningful place in my family and in my life. Right. And I was like, fine, I'm going to do a marathon in Mount Desert Island, Maine. I'm going to sort of like conquer this area of the country that has this like very negative stigma to me. And so I think as, so like running really started as like a hobby. It didn't really start as self-care. But as I sort of use it to conquer new goals, I've now run a half marathon. I've run a marathon. I'm about to start training for my second marathon. It has really become this very like self, um, it's like meditative for me. Like I'm not like a speed runner. I really embrace running like 11 to 12 minute miles where I could like zone out, enjoy the scenery and meditate. Right. It's a great way to conquer stress. Like I love just like, after a stressful work week, I love waking up at like six o'clock on a Saturday and putting my running shoes on. But I think it's also really become a way for me to just meet challenges and for me to sort of like feel like I'm strong, feel like I'm healthy. Um, words that I would not use to describe me when, myself when I was 10, 11 years old. Like I now able to really see that as part of my identity more. And so yeah, running and fitness has really sort of become self-care. And I'm actually now friends with my old gym teacher from elementary school because we worked together for a while when I was getting teaching and she thinks it's hilarious that like this little chubby girl who like refused to participate in gym class is now like getting excited about marathon training but it really has been pretty amazing wow yeah so I, I kind of see myself in you. I'm, I'm, I'm a 5K runner right now. And that's where I, I haven't figured out whether I'm going to take the plunge into a five miler or a half or a marathon. It's, it's definitely something I see on a horizon. It's just a matter of, I guess there's a big like valley I have to jump over first in order to get there. But that's, that's, that's amazing. And um, I, yeah, my trajectory has also been, you know, the couch to 5K program and then pushing and pushing and pushing and uh, it's it's intimidating, but uh, I, I see that, you know, I see the element of the med- the meditative quality that you're talking about. You know, um, for you, I guess that's your runner's high. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, I, I think I've only had that once so far. <laughs> so that's why I'm like, you know, a 5K, but if I go a little further, maybe I'll be able to experience <laughs> that, that exhilaration that runners describe because yeah. I can't really identify with it right now. Yeah. So um, just curious for you, uh, I mean, I guess you, you have a lot of little areas of self-care. That probably is your big focus. Do you have any other other things that you kind of use to, um, you know, to take, to, to embody who you are, to be your authentic self and, and to focus on that element of self-care? Um, yeah, I mean, the writing is a big one. Again, like art, and not, it's not like a master artist, but like journaling, coloring even, trying to find sort of aspects to be creative are really the two big ones. I think connecting with friends is really important for me also, just having like a really positive social group. 
I mean, they're the little things too. Like I like my, you know, monthly pedicures and things like that. And sort of, there are the little things too, but I think having art and having running in my life have really definitely been sort of instrumental to that. In addition to friends, family, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of your running, just curious, how do you, what's your, what's your regimen look like on like a weekly basis? What do you, how many miles are you running daily, monthly, weekly, monthly? What does that look like for you? Yeah, it definitely depends. Um, varies month to month um when i'm in like a thick of training for a race i'll be running like two or three miles a day like four or five days a week with longer runs on the weekends uh, back in december i didn't really run at all because i was working on a theater production and i do sort of try to go back and forth in like my art creative mode and my running mode it is hard to do both of those things while also having a full-time job and so in December, I just made the choice that this was going to be a creative month, and I was going to focus all of my energy on the theater production, and I was not going to worry about running. So it varies. I mostly like to work out about five or six days a week. Two or three of those days are usually running, but I also like to do yoga. I like to do the occasional, you know, Zumba class or just, you know, go on the elliptical at the gym. So I try to mix it up a little bit, but I try to be active at least five or six days a week. Cool. And you said earlier that you like to put on your sneakers at six in the morning is that usually your time I'm a morning person yeah I okay. mean I think a lot of that's the teacher schedule I wake up at 5 30 to get to work on time so if I sleep in until 6 or 6 30 on a Saturday like I'm ready to go <laughs> all um, right not my fiance's favorite thing about me he really enjoys sleeping and being lazy on the weekends as like 99 percent of the world does and our morning person I like to just like get up and go right and it's quieter it's definitely a lot nicer yeah. the environment is definitely a lot less intense than it gets during the evenings especially for exactly. you you're like unwinding from your classes you don't want to have to do something after that yeah. so. and the sidewalks are less crowded you don't have to dodge around as many like strollers and puppies and stuff it's just a lot easier to just like zone out right in boston proper you definitely have that problem quite a lot yeah um cool so i you know i usually try to like get a little bit of a wrap up for, um, I guess your perspective, just in looking back and looking at your life and in its whole right now, if you could give your earlier self any type of advice from where you stand today and where oh, you wow. sit today, what would you tell her? Um, I think just like, this is like so cliche, I'm sure. Um, but just to kind of believe that it would work out and just to sort of have faith that like, there were going to be some really hard years, but that like everything would be okay at the end. Right. And you take that into this year as well. I think that's a takeaway, not just for yourself or for everybody listening. That <laughs> we have to, you know, it's, it's a loaded, it's a loaded answer. It's a loaded question, loaded answer. But I think there's a lot of, I think everybody can benefit from that, from that specific piece of advice. Yes. So awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing yourself and for making yourself slightly vulnerable and maybe even a little bit uncomfortable. But I mean, for me personally, I think this is great. And I think there's a lot of stuff to just see, you know, how your life had imp has improved and how I think education, the education system has improved and in, in making sure that children are cared for and, and are really helping become their authentic selves. Yeah. And it's really important. So thank you again, Abigail and, yeah. and happy new year. And yeah. yeah, all right. I appreciate it. Thank you all again for tuning in. This is your host, Tamar Weinberg of the Common Sense Podcast. Till next time, 